Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. A choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a rock. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expounding reality. Welcome back to the show, of course, Philip Mantle and Dr. Irina Scott. Uh, you are both veterans, and I am very grateful to have you back on to talk about your new work, Beyond Reasonable Doubt. We've just, of course, passed the 50th anniversary of the Pascagoula event. I would like to speak with both of you now about this incredible, the updates that you have, your, your work, and again, guys, all the ways to find both of them and this new book, subtitled here, The Pascagoula Alien Abduction, will be located down in the show description. You guys know how this works. Reach out phenomenal work it's good to see you both so welcome welcome thank you very much good afternoon happy to be here yeah absolutely we're working time change into this thing uk does it a little bit ahead of ours so it's it's awesome so we just do a little coordination day of and everything works out this is actually the first year i hadn't really really messed with me it's been like three years in a row i've been trying to figure this time change between overseas out and we finally got it so thank you all for being a part of that um so we are here to talk about your new work. So Philip Mantle, if you don't mind, how is everything with you? How's everything going with Flying Disc Press? Well, like everyone else, we've been affected by the uh, economic situation around the world, but uh, we're still plugging away and we have a raft of new books uh, in the pipeline for the back end of this year and into next year and even 2025. So hopefully the the our current book, you know, we we've um, we've purposely made that in a, a variety of different formats and sizes, keeping in mind the economic situation. So hopefully, there's something there for for everyone's you know wallet, so to speak, uh, and and that is a, a conscious thing that I'm taking forward with me into next year as well, you know. And uh, it's it's rather apt that we're recording this today because today would have been Calvin Parker's 69th birthday. So happy birthday, Calvin, wherever yeah. you are. Godspeed, friend. And I meant to ask you, and of course we were going to open with this. Um, of course, Calvin Parker, uh, the second in the abduction story, which of course we're going to talk about just a little bit here. He was the final remaining member of that two-part group with Charles Hickson and him, and he did just recently pass. So wanted to talk about that just to give you a little bit of time here, Philip, to reflect on y'all's friendship, because I know this goes so much deeper than just a story with you and him. Y'all were, were brothers, man. Absolutely. I mean, Calvin and I linked up uh, initially in 2018, uh, and I published two books by Calvin. But we would speak literally every week, you know, on Skype. And in between times, there would be exchanges of emails and things of that nature. Um, it just became a natural thing for me to do. If I thought, oh, I, I need to clarify that, I'll just send Calvin an email and, and, and we'll get to it. And I, I've I've almost found myself doing that since he passed away. You know, it's a, like a reflex, something that I, thought, I didn't quite understand. Oh, I'll ask Calvin. Oh, I can't do that anymore. So um, I think, you know, moving, I mean, we did become very, very close friends. It reminded me a lot of my brother. I only ha ever had one brother who was older than me. He died some years ago. They had similar similar character traits and a, a similar sense of humor, you know? And I told him that. And I was I was happy that I spoke to him the week before he died. I got him on the phone. I told him how much respect he had around the world. I told him that I loved him. And I also told him he couldn't die. 
And he says, why is that? I said, well, your wife hasn't given you permission yet. And, and as poor, you know, as poorly as he was, he, he, he managed to laugh, you know. So at least his last memories of me will be with a smile on his face. And uh, it was a great guy. It's beautiful. And it's a beautiful relationship you two had. And, and, and you're, you're absolutely right in, in the sense that his work will live on uh, in, in his story and, and his ability to come forward. And you picking this up, you, Philip, are the, the guy who broke this in my mind. You know, there are a couple, of, I know Hickson did a book in 83, uh, but there, there are a few other things uh, that have popped up in there. But you're the, you're the man that got, got Calvin Parker to come out and actually talk about this thing in a way he was comfortable to. And so that is what allowed, you know, you're the man who allowed him to open up and be vulnerable, which is huge. I mean, that's, you're the pioneer of this case and it's one of the most fascinating cases and we are absolutely going to get to it. I do want to know, Dr. Scott, were you introduced to Calvin Parker? Yeah. Um, I talked to his wife too. What's your favorite memory of, of, uh, Calvin there? I <laughs> Uh, that he actually got brave and started talking about it, I guess. Good call. He'd been spent 50 years not saying a word, and finally he said something. Heard that. Yeah, no, and uh, beautiful. Uh, that's a beautiful thing to take away. Calvin, uh, did you have anything, Philip, that you uh, just wanted to Well, well I'll tell you Calvin. one little story, of, and it sums up the man. I mean, Calvin's mother was in a nursing home. And she she was so ill, she got to the stage where she didn't even recognize it. You know, you think that's sad, but even though Calvin was really poorly, really ill, every Friday night, he would take his guitar, go to the nursing home and sing for the residents and, to, you know, to entertain them. And he said to, to, to one of our sort of joint colleagues, don't tell Philip because he'll put this on Facebook. <laughs> You know, what Calvin didn't know is that I have three songs of his, you know, on the record. I've got, I've actually got them. And he, he could sing in tune, let's put it that way. I Good. won't put them on Facebook, but uh, it showed you what a lovely guy he was doing that when he was seriously ill himself. And, but then he still had that sense of humour uh, afterwards as well. And that, that's, you know, that's one of my final thoughts. If you ever think of Calvin, it's that little story that always comes back to me. It really is. It's beautiful. What a great story. And and you're absolutely right. Um, it, it It's one of those things to peek behind this. And, and Calvin was one of these guys that did not want this recognized. I mean, he initially, you know, of course, the story goes as, as it goes that he said that he sort of passed out and didn't want to uh, relay that he was consciously aware of anything that happened, wanted to be done with this completely, even moved after he came out about it later on initially. And so this this whole thing was not for publicity, which makes the story even more compelling. And then, of course, with Dr. Scott's findings as well and beyond Pascagoula, which episode uh, 110 down in there, guys. So all the uh, both episodes that they have both been on, episode 4 and 30, 139 for Philip and Dr. Scott, 110 will be located down in the show description to get more into detail with that, as well as reach out all of the works that have been contributed to this are going to be located down there as well. So just a compendium of links down there for y'all. So we have some new evidence to come out, but also it's just fascinating when you look back at the case, review it from a few other findings that Dr. Scott has found and bring forth, brought forth in her work. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating thing that continues to get more interesting as you look at it. So uh, I know perhaps it's been told a dozen times, but Philip, if you don't mind, would you just give us a quick, what happened that night of October 11th, 1973? Yeah, absolutely. Calvin had recently got engaged to his fiance Waynette, and he bought a new car. And he didn't live in the Pascagoula area. He lived uh, out near Laurel, which is, you know, a good, a, a good distance away. And he was working long hours. And uh, Waynette said, it would be nice if you had a regular job. I could see more of you. Now, Calvin's father uh, knew Charlie Hickson. Their families had grown up with each other. So his father said to him, why, why don't you give... Charlie a call. You know, he's a foreman in the shipyard. He might be able to get you a job. So Calvin did that. Charlie said, no problem. You know, we're setting up. So the idea was Calvin would live with Charlie Monday to Friday, pay in some lodgings, and then go home on a weekend. So Thursday, October the 11th, 1973, was his first day at work in the shipyard. And he spent the morning, you know, doing health and safety checks, in the afternoon, he was employed as a welder, and off he went to work. 
on the way home that night, Kelvin's driving home. The one thing that both gentlemen liked, you know, was fishing. And Charlie said, you want to do a spot of fishing tonight, son? Calvin says, yeah, absolutely. We went and got some fishing tackle from Charlie's. They set off. Uh, they bought some bait on the way. Uh, Charlie's given him directions because Calvin didn't know the area at all. So they're driving down by the Pascagoula River, which is just right next to Highway 90, where they were. The used bridge goes over the river. Uh, they passed a car that was parked up with a couple of people in it. Then they passed a no-entry sign, and Calvin remarked on this, and Charlie said, don't take any notice, you know. So they set about fishing. The first spot they were in, they got infested with insects, so they decided to move, and they parked themselves on an old pier. You know, there was an old abandoned little shipyard, and this, you know, so they stood there fishing away. They heard all this little buzzing noise first, and then this blue light came from behind them and went out across the water. Calvin thought, I knew we shouldn't have ignored that no-entry sign. It's the police. We're going to spend the night in jail, you know, for trespassing. So they both kind of turned around at the same time. And Charlie actually said in his book, he said, I remember seeing the look on Calvin's face, you know. And, of course, it wasn't the police. This oval object was descending. It was giving off this, you know, radiant light. It had two lights on one end. It stopped about two feet above the floor. Uh, and then this opening appeared. And these three, the light then became more intense. They had to shield their eyes. These three humanoid figures literally floated out of this thing. They didn't, again, they didn't touch the ground. About 18 inches above the ground. Uh, Charlie described them as being about five feet to five feet four. Uh, they were, they were gray in colored. The skin was wrinkly like that of an elephant's. They had no neck, and then outside on the side of the head was carrot-like protrusions, and one out the front. They had long arms with pincer or mitten-like appendages. The, the legs never moved. It was almost as if they were welded together. Two of the these things got hold of Charlie, one got hold of Calvin. And whilst they were terrified, they then became kind of relaxed, but they couldn't move. The only thing they could move was their eyes. They were taken into this thing. Calvin to the left, Charlie to the right. Calvin said he was laid on a, a transparent table or, or something of that nature. And this ugly thing, as he calls it, just stood to attention. And as he looked up, an object came out of the ceiling. It said it was about the size of a, a deck of cards. Stopped in front of him, went around him, making a kind of a clicking noise, went back up. And then he said he felt this presence behind him and somehow he knew it was a female and sure enough a female appeared to all intents and purposes she looked pretty much human apart from the fact that her middle fingers were a lot longer and she opened calvin's mouth and stuck her finger in his mouth which it, it hurt and um, at one point they removed his lower clothing and his shoes and socks and they stuck something in his foot and he said it hurt you know, they redressed him. He managed to gain his composure at one point and got hold of this female round the round the head. But she just pointed to the to the creature. It got hold of Calvin, and he was back outside on the pier. Charlie, you know, he didn't. He said he was suspended. That's how he described it. He's been suspended, and something came out of the wall in front of him. He said it looked like a big eye. You know, that's how he described it. He didn't see any female creatures. Um, Charlie thought, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me, you know. And he said, I hope they get it over with quickly. Um, but this creature then got hold of him, took him back out to the pier, and there's Calvin standing there with his arms stretching out towards the water. Uh, Charlie's legs gave way, but he managed to stagger to his feet and shake Calvin. Son, son, are you all right, son? And they both turned around to see this thing go off, gone, in a flash. So they discussed what was the best thing to do. And, and at that point, they weren't going to tell anybody. You know, so they staggered back to Calvin's car, which, which was brand new. I mean, literally brand new car. Charlie opened the passenger door and all the glass fell out. 
Calvin got in the other side. He said, it took me at least 20 attempts to start it. And he said, you know, it, it's, it just started first time. So they set off. And as they heading back home, it was Charlie who had a change of heart. He said, no, we've got to tell someone. What if these things come back and do this to somebody else? Charlie had been in the army and fought in Korea. So he said, what if this is the start of an invasion? So Calvin agreed, but on, on you know, on one condition. I'm, I'm not going to tell them about what happened to me on board. I'll say at that point I passed out. When I saw the creatures coming, I don't remember anything. So Charlie agreed. They pulled into a little store that had a pay phone. Remember, this is 1973. They put coins in the phone, in the, in the phone. And the first person, he, or the first place that he phoned, this was Charlie from Keesler Air Force Base, which was nearby. And they said, sorry, we're not in the UFO business anymore. Ring your local authorities. And Calvin's in the car shouting obscenities. <laughs> you know, he was not, he was not best pleased. So they, they ring the police. They, it's actually the sheriff's department that handle it. They send a car out to them. And they give them a sobriety test, no problem. And they escort them into town to the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. They're both interviewed separately. They're then put in a room together and left alone for a few minutes. Unbeknown to them, there's a tape recorder in the nest desk next to them. The deputy comes back and takes something out of the desk. They have no idea what it is. And the deputy and the sheriff and, and whatever you think, we're, we'll have them now, they'll be laughing and joking, you know. But, of course, when they played the tape back, they weren't. Calvin's literally crawling up the wall. You know, he's going off his head. So, you know, there's a change of attitude then with, with the sheriff's department. They tend to believe them. And say, well, there's not much we can do for you guys. You better go home. So they say to the sheriff, please, you know, don't let this out. The sheriff says, no, we won't tell anybody. So they go home. The next morning, they get up to go to work. And as they pull into the, the shipyard, they said there's one or two cars extra there. They hadn't been at work two minutes when they're summoned to the boss's office. And the boss said, what the hell have you two been up to? The telephones won't stop ringing. I've got journalists outside. Somehow the story had got out. So they tell their boss. And he said, well, I'll give you the use of our company attorney if you want, Mr. Kalingo. They didn't ask for it, he just offered it. So they were then dispatched to the Singing River Hospital where they were given, you know, a quick exam. And somebody said, what about radiation? Well, the hospital couldn't check for that, but they said, well, Keesler Air Force Base can. So they are driven to Keesler Air Force Base. They're given the one sober with a, you know, a Geiger counter, there's nothing there. And they say, oh, well, while you're here, gentlemen, why don't you tell us what happened? So they do. They're going. Uh, and we have a complete recording of that conversation. There was a stenographer there. So we have the full transcript uh, and all the officers that were there. And then we have the transcript of the, the secret tape that became known from the sheriff's department. And the story was out. The next day, Dr. Harder, Dr. James Harder from APRO arrived. And, of course, Dr. Alan Hynek the Close Encounters man. And they reviewed all the data. They listened to the secret tapes. And when, before Heineck went back home, he, he held a press conference and said, these, these two gentlemen are, are, the, are the real McCoy. You should, you should treat them with respect. And Calvin eventually went back home. Uh, he ended up in the hospital. He had a bit of a breakdown. And, of course, Charlie was the one who was like the torchbearer. He went on to speak about it on television, conferences. Um, he passed away in 2011. Calvin was literally like um, the Hulk from the 1980s TV series, Dr. David Banner. He was pursued by a journalist, and every time he caught him, he'd move to a different town. But that's exactly what Calvin did in real life. You know, for the first year after the event, he was in the, the Marine Corps. Not many people know that. And then a journalist turned up at the base he was at. So he went to see his commanding officer and he, he said, well, it might be best, son, if you leave. You know, we don't we don't want any of this alien business connected with the United States Marine Corps. So he got a, you know, he got a discharge and he literally with his wife, Wayne, 
And later on, their children would move from town to town every time somebody recognized him. There was one point when he used a false name. And his boss called him one day and said, you're fired. He said, what for? I haven't done anything wrong. He said, well, your name doesn't match with your social security number, you know? So that went right on until I, I contacted him in 2018. I only wanted an interview, you know, but it turned out into something more. And the good thing, kind of, is I didn't know at the time, but Calvin had already been ill. He'd had a stroke and he'd had open heart surgery. And I think in the back of his mind, it was this was his one chance to tell his story in full, you know, accurately via, you know, via myself. And he did. But that also led to a lot of other people doing exactly the same thing. So, you know, it wasn't just Calvin's story. It was a whole story for a lot of other people as well. And, and that's where we end up today. It's an incredible story. It's easily one of um, just the most one of the most interesting abduction cases we've ever heard of, especially all the way down to the beings, a description of the lights on the craft, uh, the other corroborated witnesses, which Dr. Scott, I'd love for you to um, remind us of here, if you don't mind. There's additional witnesses to that story that took a while to come out. When actually were they um, able to speak up about this, Dr. Scott? Well, the first one was um Calvin had been on, had been videotaped and it was on YouTube and someone wrote just a note to YouTube and said, yeah, my parents saw that, which, you know, is pretty funny. And uh, Philip got in contact with them, with her and gave me the mother's name. And this was the first person I'd ever interviewed on the subject. And they're um, Maria and Jerry Vernon Blair. And I, first of all, when I called, first of all, I talked to Jerry just not very long because he was a skeptic. And he just said something about he heard a big splash and something about a blimp. And then he handed the phone to her. Well, she said that they had been on the opposite side of uh, the Pascagoula from uh, Calvin and Charlie, and had seen something going on, but they didn't know what it was. And then the next day it was in the paper. So that's what they'd been seeing, although they didn't know it. And she said they were a young married couple that then. And um, she said that while they were waiting at the at where they were for um, her husband's supervisor to come, and they were going to take a ship out to the oil stations or whatever and oil rigs and things and supply them. But the supervisor was late. And so they were sitting there in the car watching over the river and everything. And they saw this uh, thing flying around and she thought it was an airplane, but she thought it was really, really, really strange because it didn't go anywhere. It just kept, you know, circling and going here and there. And she kept saying, well, the pilot must be lost. What's the pilot doing? Is he looking for something? And she was confused. And then um, Jerry decided to take his clothes to the ship. It was about nine o'clock. And he walked down the pier and she walked down behind him. And as she was walking down behind him, something flopped up right in front of her on the pier. And it looked like a person. And she was just really emotional about this but she didn't exactly know why. And so they went on down to the ship and then somehow she didn't seem to know what they were doing. About 12 o'clock that night, she said she was coming back from the ship and she was so scared that she ran back to the car and jumped back in the car. Well, we talked, it was really interesting because we talked for a long time, talked and wrote. And she was really emotional about part of this and part of it was the thing that flopped up on the pier. And she, you could tell she was just loaded with emotion, but she didn't know why she was emotional. And, you know, she sort of suspected, I guess, that something was <laughs> not quite right, but she didn't know what. And so anyway, uh, we talked for about, communicated for about two years. And then unfortunately her husband became sick. And um, I guess he was kind of knowing he was gonna die. And he 
just before he went on the ventilator. And when he went on the ventilator, he couldn't talk. But just before that, he told her that they had been abducted. And he'd been a skeptic all this time, his whole life. He'd been a skeptic and told her to shut up about it. Don't say anything. Nothing happened. You're, you know, crazy and everything. We went a complete changeover real fast and said, yeah, they'd been abducted. He remembered it. And he remembered a lot of details. Like he remembered afterwards, he remembered the beings kind of, not in a real lot of detail, but he remembered afterwards that they swam across the river back to where the UFO had been. And he said, he called one of them the doctor and he said he pointed to his eye and said he kept his eye on that one. For some reason, she wasn't sure. And um, so anyway, it turned out that they might've been abducted too. And there might've been a double abduction, which would be really, really strange. And when Marie saw that thing flop up, well, she said, actually, she remembered more about it later, that it was a being and that it got her in control, her mind, you know, controlled her mind and made her forget what happened and things. But all this time she'd had all this emotion, but she didn't have any idea why she had the emotion. And so, um, Later, she had a hypnosis session and remembered more. Um, and it was kind of funny because her husband said he'd been in contact with these beings for a long time, but he didn't say anything about it. And he was always a skeptic. Maybe other people are like that, too. And um, so she had, you know, something to worry about with her husband, too, because he'd been... It, um, you know, in contact with these beings a whole lot. He'd been through several marriages. Her hypnosis session said they were interested in DNA and eggs of hers. And uh, in the hypnosis session, she said the beings wanted to make uh, hybrids of themselves that would live among us. And she said some people aren't real, they are hybrids. And that she was worried about her husband, worried about DNA and <laughs> everything. So it was quite a complex um, account. It's so interesting. And, and it's almost like, so let me just real quick. Did they remember physically being on a craft or just being messed with that time whenever they were swam across the river? The being swam back to the craft. He remembered being on the craft, but I don't think she did. I think she said something about she kept her eyes shut and she just looked at it from outside. I don't think she remembered being on it. Maybe she did it in hypnosis because she was talking about him taking her eggs and stuff. But I think so far as consciously that um, she didn't really remember. Yeah, it's like they almost creep up. They get you you know, take over your mind and you remember that bit of that transition from your consciousness, from this odd thing flopping on that deck. And I could imagine, right? Could you imagine that? They're out there in the dark, by the way, you know, looking out at the water, this thing, and it flops up on the wall. I mean, terrifying. And then to think that there's a, you could see, oh no, I'm going under. It's almost like when the doctors ask you to count back from 10, whenever you're going in, under anesthesia, I don't know how far I get. I maybe get to nine. I've had anesthesia like one time, but they said, yeah, you never get far. But it's sort of like that moment where you know something's happening. But imagine that you you under anesthesia in this example. I knew I was going under. They had no clue what was happening. Anybody, and you know, um, it's just interesting whenever you think that they snuck over, apprehended consciousness, did what they did, didn't need to sneak around anymore. So, do you think that they were carried back over the water? My question is, do you think the craft came to them to come abduct them on this side of the water, or do you think that they were floated across because neither one of them were soaking wet, like they were submerged to get to the craft? but the entities were seen going back in the water to get back to the craft. Do you see what I'm asking? I don't yeah, know. Because, uh, well, uh, okay. So, no, I, I mean, what, what um, Maria, her conclusion was that uh, the, the abduction that night was planned for them and not Charlie and Kelvin oh. because, because Maria and her husband, Jerry had planned to be at that location at that time, you know, he was taking the boat out, you know, and and they were just late. His boss was late. Calvin and Charlie, on the other hand, only decided driving home that night to go fishing. Yeah, it was so, like their second spot, right? Like they were like collateral, so to speak, you know? That's fascinating. And and of course, then 
uh, Jerry Blair saying that he'd been in contact them with them previously as well. You know, so that that's her conclusion. She doesn't know for sure. And uh, and when I first spoke to uh, Mrs. Blair, Maria, uh, before I handed her over to to our, uh, Irina, she said, "I, you know, she says I've often wondered if something similar didn't happen to us that happened to Charlie and Kelvin." And I said, "Well, why do you think that, Maria?" And she said, "I I can see something out of my peripheral vision." Well, I can't quite make it out. This is with the emotional part that, that Irina was talking about. She's very emotional about it. As we progressed and as Irina discussed things with us, it wasn't from her peripheral vision. It was one of these creatures that got hold of her and she closed her eyes and she was literally peeping through her eyes. And it was that little bit that she could see, not out of the side of her eyes, but she literally screwing her eyes up. You know, uh, and she said on several occasions now it put it put her out almost in, instantly, but she still had time to get that little glimpse of what was happening, and um, it's and of course she also knew the area. So when she's saying this is an airplane, she knew there's no airfield there. This thing was coming down as well, and there's nowhere for it to land. But she's still trying to rationalize it. She didn't instantly say, oh, look, there's a, there's a UFO. Same with Jerry. He, he kind of dismissed it and said, oh, well, it must be a helicopter then. Or like he said to uh, to Irene, it must have been a blimp. But again, there's no there's nowhere for a helicopter in that area, you know. Um, so, it, you know, it, it just made it more and more fascinating as as, as time progressed. And that was Maria. And in our book, of course, there is the whole transcript of Maria's uh, hypnosis. What I should say is we, we told Maria first off to forget about hypnosis. You, your husband's not long died, you know. He's, but she asked us again. So we said, okay. So we arranged for a hypnotherapist, uh, a professional, to come to Calvin Parker's house because Calvin had been under hypnosis before. He now knew Maria, that they were friends, and it would be conducted at Calvin's house. But we never told the hypnotherapist anything about the subject matter. She was just given a date, a time, and a location. And and of course we had it we had it filmed. I hired a professional cameraman to film it. One of the things you see when you run the film back is the look on the face of the hypnotherapist when Maria starts talking about these things because she had no idea, you know. And um, Maria was emotional during the filming. She took a long time from question to answer. She kept saying, I miss my husband. My husband's not here. But then a few weeks later, we used the same hypnotherapist to put Calvin under hypnosis. Obviously, she knew a little bit about it now. Uh, and we did this simply because we had the opportunity to do it and we filmed it thankfully we now have it for posterity yes so i said to her ask ask calvin this question for me before he stood on the pier with his you know his his fishing rod and his line in the water before anything happens just describe the scene in front of him so she asked him this question and he said yeah there's the bridge over there of course there's all the traffic going over it there's a boat going out. He even told me the, the name of the boat, the, you know, the company name. And right at the end of this little description, he says, oh, there's two people on the other side of the river, two figures, two figures on the other side of the river. Now, my my question to that is, was this Mr. and Mrs. Blair or was it somebody else? I mean, we'll we'll never know, you know. It's would and it, it brings up so many more questions, especially of course now you've unturned another stone with this, but it brings up so many more questions because yes, was uh Calvin Calvin and Charles's experience sort of like you said, collateral damage because they were sort of an incidental, but there was traffic going by. They there were people on the boat. Like were did did y'all track down the people on the boat that night and see if they had some weird stuff? Because it seems to be what's the sphere of influence for collateral damage, if that's no, what it was. It's what, just interesting. What we, what we, one of the criticisms back in nineteen seventy-three was that no one on the bridge that night saw anything. Well, that's the wrong thing to say. No one on the bridge that night has come forward. 
Right. However, there was a gentleman who we interviewed with a Mr. Mr. Charles Rusty Anderson. He said, I was driving over the bridge that night with my wife. And he said, I saw this, this white blue thing. Calvin Charles, all the blue lights down below me. And he says, I thought, whatever it is, it's going to crash. It was that low. He said he watched it for about 30 seconds, which is a, a good time to, to view something. The following day, he went to visit an aunt who lived down by the river. And before he, he could open his mouth, she said to him, you'll never believe what I saw last night. You know, yeah. so we didn't, the aunt's long gone, but we, we did interview uh, Mr. Anderson and he's in the book. And what is interesting Irina and I have been consultants on a, a new documentary that's being made by a UK company. And they were over in the States last year filming and they interviewed Mr. Anderson. So he put a little post on his Facebook. You know, I've just been interviewed about my UFO sighting. You trail down the comments on it and there's a lady there saying, oh, I saw the thing that night. So I got in touch with her and she told us and out what we did what we did find out she was actually the cousin of Mr. Anderson. And she didn't know he'd seen something and vice versa, you know. And then another example how things just work with this case. Calvin was doing a book signing in Pascagoula. And a, a, an elderly gentleman with white hair steps up out of a park, out of a book Mr. Parker, there you go, you know, and he says, Oh. I saw the thing that night, and off he goes. He's always got his signed book, and off he goes. Luckily for us, someone was taking photographs, and there's a, we have a picture of this gentleman buying the book. We didn't know who, who he was, so we put it on social media. That lady contacted me. She says, I know who he is. And I said, well, will you ask him if we can talk to him? And he's, he come back and said, yeah. It was a chap by the name of Mr. Lewis Lee. And Mr. Lee again, was on the other side of the river that night, but this time in the shipyard he was working. And he was a crane driver. And he said, Philip, my, my cab is about 10, 12 feet off the ground. And he says, as soon as I got in it, I could see this darn thing out across the river. He said, I've never seen anything like it in my life, you know? And he said, I watched it for some minutes. And the only reason he took his eyes off it is because his colleague down below him is shouting, you know, what are you doing? And he had to see to his load or whatever it was they were doing. He said, when I looked back, it was gone. And I said to Mr. Anderson, uh, sorry, Mr. Lee, did you report it to anybody? He says, Philip, this is 1973. You can't call Ghostbusters, you know. <laughs> he said, I told my family about it uh, and that's it, you know. Uh, sadly, Mr. Lee has, has passed away uh, since we interviewed him, but his interview is, is in our book. And, you know, following on from Calvin telling his story, Irina and I were really on a, I'll say, I'll, I'll say a mission, it's probably the wrong word, but I'll say a mission to document these other sightings, these other bits of information before it was too late. You know, had we hesitated and not bothered with Mr. Lee, his story would have gone untold because uh, people are reaching that stage in their lives, you know, and so on. Um, and same goes with, with Calvin, of course. I think he realised, even when we first started talking, that there was something else other than his heart problems brewing. You know, I think he had an inclination that, because he, he used this phrase to me, he said, we all have our own expiration date. And I think in the back of his mind, he thought, well, my, I've only got this chance now to tell my story. And, of course, that's exactly, you know, what happened. Um, but, you know, more and more people came out of the woodwork. It's, it's you know, or we found them. It's, some people say, oh, like, like uh, Jerry and Maria Blair, oh, they only want their 15 minutes of fame. They didn't want anything. Had their, it was their daughter that made that comment on YouTube. Had she not made that comment, we probably would never have found them, you know. Uh, so they didn't step forward. We found them, uh, and thankfully we've documented what they what they've had to say.
It's brilliant. And you're like the Batman of these investigations. You you have the best luck when it comes to this stuff, but you're also so tenacious with this. I remember uh, every time you've come on, the part of the reason I love having you on is to hear the connections you've made through your detective work to find these obscure, incredible additions to cases that, that are just so much more fascinating as you add the pieces to them. So like you said, yes, if, if these parts of this, because Jerry and Maria's case now i mean it's so interesting but and just to what you said about your hypnotist uh hypnotherapist I'm, I'm thinking of bud hopkins and how he used to bring people to hypnotherapists and like dr Clymer, you know one of his long loved ones but the first time that he met he was interviewing all these different therapists uh hypnotherapists and it's i just picture their faces you know because he didn't tell them anything either he gives them very abject objective view just here give me a date and let him let him go loose on it and then the shock on these people's faces right but like Bud Hopkins as well, it ties into the Blair's case, because now if we're talking about genetics, I'm thinking of uh, intruders, of course, in the Copley yeah. Woods event. And yeah. it's it's silly, though, and so I kind of want to bring this up. So uh, let's let's talk about the hybridization real quick. What, what do you guys think to that element of the story, that there is some sort of genetic material being taken and that there is some sort of race being created? Uh, just feel free to speculate wildly here, but there are quite a few reports of this being in the narrative. So it I don't think can't be part of the conversation. What do y'all think? Dr. Scott, we'll turn it to you first. Well, um, I think nobody has an emotional reaction to it because it's so creepy and it comes from hypnosis. And so everybody said, well, it couldn't possibly happen, but you know, it might happen. And she said, she kept saying some of the people here aren't real that they're hybrids. Maybe that was their husband for all I know. And the, um, you know, they may be distributing their DNA to us and things. Uh, so it was pretty creepy, but, you know, you don't know if it's true or not. I mean, if it is, it's really creepy. <laughs> it is, or it's a cover story. Maybe it, maybe it's a mental cover story that's implanted, which I don't know why anybody's able to remember anything on this. Um, I have my own theories about that, like we all do, but maybe it's something planted because there's something worse going on. You know, maybe they're like, uh, just tell them it's a hybridization program kind of a thing, you know, and perhaps it's a seeded memory of some sort, just sort of a consideration, sort of a take home bag of just some sort of narrative, but it does pop up that the atomic weapons thing, all of this seems to be part of this strange narrative that just gets more bizarre when you really niche down into each in particular case. And, uh, and of course, you know, Bud Hopkins played a significant role in this case that a lot of people might not be aware of, because in 1993, Calvin had another encounter, this time on his own. He was out fishing in a little boat. And um, I, I won't go through the whole story, but um, when he got back home and he was, he was talking to a friend of his who had a bit of knowledge about the subject. And he said, do you know Bud Hopkins is in Florida this weekend at a UFO convention? So they literally got in the car and drove to Florida uh, unannounced. And Calvin wouldn't go in because the convention was in the hotel. So his friend went in and found Bud. I mean, I knew Bud pr pretty well. Bud said, here's my key to my hotel room. I'll meet you there in, you know, in an hour or whenever. So they met Annie Calvin submitted to hypnosis and we managed to find the tape. And it's not in this book, it's in a previous book. But well, again, you know, through our research, we found that um, Charles Hickson had undergone hypnosis twice with Bud Hopkins in different years. And again, we, we, we managed to obtain copies of the tapes and what is interesting is Charlie had two encounters as a young fella, as a young boy. So did Calvin. He had two encounters when he was a young fella. And the common denominator, as far as Calvin was concerned, through all four encounters now, was this woman, this female. She was in all four of them. Now, make of that what you will, you know, uh, but it, it's, it just, again, the story expands even further because if we're, if we're honest, prior to me contacting uh, Calvin, all we knew was of their 1973 incident and the Sheriff's Department and Keesler Air Force Base. That was pretty much it, you know, but it, it is now grown to be so much more. And it is another little thing. Irina and I, I mean, we didn't set out to write a book, you know, and it wasn't our intention. It's just 
we wrote a number of articles. As we found things, we'd write an article about it. We, you know, going to write so many articles. So it, it became a book in the end, you know. And I have to be honest, we edited it several times because new information would come forward. I think, oh, we'll have to stick, you know, the beauty of digital technology is you can just, you know, cut and paste. So in August, we finally said, that's it. You know, the book's coming out. You know, that's it. No, look, you know, sooner had we had we done that than a lady by the name of Chelsea Norton Prince from the Ocean Springs Historical Society in Mississippi contacted me. Now, one of her colleagues, you know, part of the Historical Society, uh, knew that Chelsea was interested in the Pascagoula case. She, they have a Facebook page. She put a couple of things on it now and again. And she said to her, do you know, I've got two boxes of correspondence and stuff that used to belong to Charles Hickson. What? She says, would you want them? Yes, please. You know, this lady was called Bethany, Bethany Fayard. And Bethany's parents actually bought Charlie's house when he died in 2011. This stuff was left in it. There was a lot more. She'd given some away some years back and she couldn't remember who took. So Beth, uh, uh, Chelsea said to me, do you want it, Philip? I said, well, yeah. So she digitized it all for me and Irina. Irina still hasn't been sent a copy, by the way. I've still got it here. But there's like 1,500 scans. So there's no smoking gun in this. Um, but what there is is some fascinating little pieces. You know, there is a an unpublished pencil sketch of the UFO by Charles Hickson, which to me I find fascinating. It's a yes. little piece of history. Yeah. He also does a bullet point. There you go, Irene is showing you, Dr. it. Scott, look at that video version located down below, guys. And um, there's oh, a one wow. to he, there's a handwritten one to twenty, um, and he writes the description like how big the nose was on this thing, how big their chest was. Yeah, I think he said it's forty four inches. Then there's correspondence from people, one of whom is Bud Hopkins. Or there's letters from Betty Hill, because. Charlie and, and both Calvin met Betty Hill at different times, you know. And one little a letter I did find is, is from a gentleman who was a NASA physicist. And I've checked it out online. He is, he, he, you know, there's his full letter, he, he, you know. And he says to Charlie, this is written to Charlie, he said, I, I approached my bosses at NASA when this incident happened and asked them to investigate it. And he said they were not interested. So opportunity missed as far as NASA were concerned. Um, but curiously, on this letter was his address. And I, and I know it's going back some years, but so I've written to the address. And so far, he hasn't been returned. So you never know. He might still be alive. He might be an old NASA physicist so, sitting in his armchair somewhere. Uh, but these were little. So it just goes to show you that the investigation hasn't ended. You know, the, there is other things out there. Um, and Irina just interviewed a, a gentleman just recently who we, who we found uh, talking about the where the UFO might have, have been, Irina. Well, he he um, saw this UFO. He was, he said it was at that time and he was driving over uh, the road and he looked down and he saw this thing flying around. And there is, everybody mentioned there's no airport there. And he said it didn't fly, you know, in a logical fashion. It was just flying around like it wasn't doing anything. And then, uh, and then it took off and flew away. Well, he said that he knew it was a government, that it wasn't anything else. And that um, it had to be the government and so on. So he didn't believe in UFOs or anything. But so he still saw something and he still reported it. Yeah. And this was this would have been about the time when the abduction and everything took place. What do you what do you guys think to that um, argument of his his thesis on that? Would you do you think it's even possible that maybe even some hybrids work with the government or maybe our government is all aliens and they just kind of have human suits on and then they really go out and abduct people every now and then. Do you think that there's anything to that? Well, I know um, 
British author, Nick Redfern. Nick lives in the United States. I know Arlington, actually Texas, right down the road from me, I think. Yeah, Nick believes it was a military experiment. It's got nothing to do with aliens. It was a military experiment. Uh, it's in one of his books, and he gives other examples of, of other alleged military experiments. I just, first and foremost, if it's why would you do it so close to, I mean, the, the area that this is, he's not in the middle of nowhere. It's right next to the main highway, you know. As we said, when they're driving into the fishing spot, they pass another car that's already there. You know, it's got a young couple in it, you know, doing what young couples do. But it's it's not out in the the Mississippi swamplands. And um, the answer I'd give to that, <clears throat> the answer I'd give to that is it government con use contractors all the time. So this yeah. could be like a government contracted ship. It just could be, oh, yeah, we work for the government, but we're not affiliated with them. Sort of, uh, yeah, send that ship out. We can't send the camo guys out and the Black Hawk helicopters. Let's send that, you know, UFO out and those creatures and the, you know, put the guys in the suits and all that kind of thing. Because yeah, weren't there injuries well, 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 on... Uh, Go ahead, please. Well, we have the injuries we'll talk, we'll come to that in a second. But yes, what we re what we also found out is was that whatever happened at Pascagoula wasn't an isolated incident. There was a huge wave of sightings across the United States that year. And it was later written up, I think, by I think it was Walter Webb in a in a uh, a book, you know, the year of the humanoids. And you know, I've I've just published a book by by Kevin Randall, and it's called 1973. The year of UFOs, landings, and abductions. So, if it was an experiment, it was a year-long one that went right across the United States, and it and it may have peaked in October, you know. And um, when you mentioned the the injuries there, when when this incident took place, Charlie said that these two creatures grabbed hold of him, and he felt a scratch. He thought it might have been an injection, but he felt a scratch on his arm. Um, and didn't he hear Calvin, a little? air sound as well there was sort this of a... was the, this was calvin said that he said he heard this little psh, psh. but when calvin was on board this thing he, he said they took his lower clothing off and his shoes and socks and they stuck something in his foot and it hurt and he, he said it felt like they were drawing the life out of him like they were sucking the blood out of him um so when 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 i started working with calvin one of the things I said to him was, he was writing the, the manuscript at this time. Have you got any photographs, Calvin? Any documents? Not a thing. He said, we lost everything in Hurricane Katrina. Because his house is literally, you know, 60 feet from the river. And his, his house was under 10 or 12 feet of water. So it was all gone. So what I did, I sent out blanket statement requesting anything, basically. And the Center for UFO Studies contacted me, obvious place to start, because Heineck was on site in 73. They sent me a PDF file, mostly newspaper cuttings, but we're grateful for them. But, but in the middle of this lot of stuff, what is a one-page typewritten letter. So it's done on an old typewriter. And the reason we know that is because it says the date on the top. And they've gone over the date. They've typed over it. They've made a mistake and gone back and typed over it. So it's October the 13th, 1973. And it's called Puncture Wounds. And it details Charlie and Calvin being stripped down to their underwear, being given a once-over, and that they find, in inverted commas, puncture wounds in Charlie's forearm and in Calvin's foot. And it talks about photographs. Well, there were no photographs, were it? But I thought, this is a fascinating little document. So I said to Calvin, who, who, who stripped you down to your underwear? And he said, it, it was Dr. Harder. He just asked us to do it. He wasn't a medical doctor, by the way. He was a doctor of engineering, but at least he did that. So it must have been, I don't know, a year or more after this. Could be longer than that without referencing the book. I can't remember exactly how long. But the same gentleman, Mark Rodiger, at, at the Centre for UFO Studies, sent me an email. says, Philip, I've been rooting through some files today. I wasn't looking for this, but I've come across, I'm sure you've already got this, but I thought I'd better send you it just in case. And hey, presto, it is the photographs to go with that document. And you see Charlie's arm, his forearm with these marks on it, and Calvin Parker's foot. And we know because there's no face, there's no head on them, but we know who's who because it's a photograph and they've written the names on the back. 
and that's been scanned as well. So here you have Charlie and Calvin saying they felt minor injuries, little pricks and scratches. Then you have a, a letter typed by Dr. Harder, and then we have the photographs. And they're all in the book. The photographs are published in our book for the first time anyway. I think it's a compelling piece of evidence. I really do. It is. Physical evidence is always a compelling piece of evidence, especially when you think that they were, to to the Blair's case, they, they don't seem to have any physical contact with them, but they were under some sort of spell by the time they physically reached them. But it seems that Calvin and, and Charles needed to be physically apprehended before they were subdued, because once they were grabbed, they were kind of, huh. But it, it's interesting just to add that bit of a detail, because it's such a clunky um clunky bit of technology if that's what occurred if that's what it was was two more because they got more passive once that poke happened allegedly but the, or even just the, the contact but this is like the interesting part about it you, you have two similarities as far as the outcomes as far as fatigue goes and apprehension and unwillingness to fight or flight you just freeze and go and then but two different mechanisms and seems to be in which they were instilled but by the same event by all regards right yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, so it's, it's you know, and again, none of us knew this when we started, you know, none of us knew any of this. And, um, you know, there's, there's certain parts of the encounter Calvin, you know, didn't like talking about. It, it's kind of generalizing. And that, that part about him being undressed, it, 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 it embarrassed him amongst a lot of things, you know. And Calvin was a tough young fella. You know, used to sticking up for himself. He told me, he said, I was at school with my, my younger brother. He said, if anybody picked on my younger brother, they had me to deal with, you know. But here he is lying helpless and cannot do anything about it. And that, that preyed on his mind, you know. Whereas Charlie was the opposite. Charlie, had, you know, was 42 years of age, was a veteran of the Korean War, saw some quite severe, some shit. you know, yeah. action and... So he had that to fall back on. And he said, you know, he says in his own book, he said, I thought these creatures were going to kill me. And I just wanted it over with. But then he, he went back to his time in Korea and he said, we were pinned down by enemy fire. And he, I think he said his captain was there. And his captain says, stay calm. Don't worry. An opportunity will arise for us to get the hell out of here. And it did, you know. So then instead of thinking about they're going to kill me, he went to thinking back to his military mode, you know, I've got to stay calm, the opportunity is going to arise, and I'll be able to get out of here, you know, whereas Calvin had none of that to fall back on, you know, none of it at all. I mean, it may sound strange to people today, but one of the things Calvin was really, really worried about was he just got engaged, and he was worried that if this story got out, his future father-in-law wouldn't let him marry Waynette. Because Wayne was only 16 at the time, so they needed, you know, parents' permission. Calvin was only 18, you know. And it seems kind of strange to us in today's modern society, but but that was on his mind as well. And, um, you know, the, the, the whole story has, has just opened up and gets bigger and bigger and bigger uh, as, the, as time goes by. And, and I, don't see, I don't see it ending anytime soon. I really don't. Well, on that note, we're probably going to wrap it up here. And thank you for that. I don't see it ending anytime soon. And here we go uh, signing off here. But I just kind of want to get a, a bit of fun information from both of you through through all of your investigations. It, it can be on this case or not. And again, as all the ways to find them, both the books, their first appearances on the shows, all of that kind of stuff located down in the show description. Uh, and thank you both for being here. I find it funny, though, in some of these cases, and I'll, I'll uh, bring back to intruders, the Bud Hopkins work here for a second, that in that hybridization program, right, it says terrible, horrible stories uh, within that book. Highly recommend. In fact, I'll link it below. Everybody get a copy and check it out. But uh, it, within there also are some beautiful nuggets of that you kind of call into question what the hell these things are and their intelligence, if that is what we're dealing with here rather than just some sort of technology that some dorks kind of know how to use pretty well, right? The the point is, and, and I'll ask you guys if you have any examples in your in your findings, is the cases of men who have had vasectomies that they pick up for breeding programs. And there have been many. Have you guys heard of this, these cases? No. They're wonderful because they pick these human beings up for the specific reason of breeding them in their hybridization program. They'll take the sample after an interesting... Um, 
event, sort of like uh, Andreas Villas-Boas's event, and then they'll um, take that sample over, and then he they'll say after some time a large entity comes by and looks at him very angrily and sort of gives him the boot out of the <laughs> UFO and sends him on his way, and this has happened multiple times. They say, you know, to Bud's case, they'll say, Bud, he looked at me like he was really angry and disappointed. My question is, if this is such an elaborate, amazing thing, you'd think that they could scan you to see... If that was a modification that you'd undertaken before they dr go through the pageantry of dragging you on board, and there are multiple cases of this occurring. So it's sort of like a trial by fire, I guess, pun intended, hit and miss kind of thing here. But what do you all think of that? There's some clunky elements to the UFO phenomena that I find Well, well it's a bit like they'll, they'll say, oh, my memory's been wiped. I can't remember what happened. But then they go on to hypnosis and they remembered it. Now, right. surely, if these were aliens, they'd know by now that we can use that hypnosis. We can do that, right? <laughs> you know, so what is the point of, of, of arranging the memory in the first place? Great you know, question. it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. What I will say is, when I first started um, in in the abduction side of things, it was way back in the nineties, and a local lady near to where I live, I, I interviewed many times. She had a, a whole series of encounters, and I. I worked with Bud on this particular case. I would literally transcribe the interviews I had with her, put them in the mail to Bud. You know, he'd have a copy and he'd read them and then he would send things back. Now, one of the things that, as you're talking about the hybrid thing, Bud was talking about a little bit later, um, this lady said the same thing. She said she'd had these phantom pregnancies and the the, the, the baby had been taken away yeah. and she'd then been taken back and shown it and said, this is your child. And she said it looked like a cheap child's doll with this awful cheap hair on it, you know? Yeah. Like an irradiation course, sickness or something. That was exactly what Bud was talking about. And he nicknamed these smart baby dreams. But there was no way this, this, this housewife from England knew anything about that, but she was reporting exactly the same kind of thing that Bud was working on and hadn't yet published. And I only knew about it because of my correspondence with him. And I had him come speak at our conferences and things like this, but it was before he published it. So how the hell does a housewife on the other side of the Atlantic report something pretty much the same as, as a whole array of, of young women in the United States that are only known to Bud? I don't know. Perhaps there is an answer, but if there is, I don't know. It's wild. It just seems like a um, uh, an oversight almost on their part that there, there there are these types of things that can occur. And then as well, too, you said that they're able to be actually recalled somewhere. And Dr. Scott, to what you said about the visceral reaction Miss um, Maria Blair had to her memory of the beast coming out of the water, whatever it was, there's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score, and it's basically that all the memories are stored here. And so you will get this visceral reaction that will light you up, even though you don't have any conscious memory of it. And that's what occurs a lot of times with these. And especially, I think, whenever someone sees something off or something on a movie that flashes for a second and they get terrified, it almost unlocks that petrification that occurred from some event that they don't consciously recall. It's just very interesting. Dr. Scott, before we end here, do you have any interesting, I guess, anomalies that just you're puzzled by whenever it comes to some things in the UFO phenomena. Well, I interviewed uh, Bud Hopkins once and I put it on YouTube and I don't remember if it was part of the interview, but he said sometimes they can um, like delete the memory of a whole group of people, not just one at a time. And he was talking about, I think it was a school or a military established something like that where everybody forgot something and so, you know, the abductions and things may be massive and they may be a screen memory, too, for all I know. Yeah, it's interesting. And it just keeps getting more mysterious, which is why I'm grateful you two are out here absolutely crushing it at the work that you're doing. You're bringing so much more light to these cases. You're making it to ask so many more questions, which is always fascinating. So thank you both for your time. Everything, of course, all the ways to find you all located down in the show notes. Look forward to doing it again. Well, thank you very much, and we'll, we'll probably get back to you when the documentary comes out. Absolutely. Because a number of these witnesses have gone on the camera this time for the first time ever. So I look forward to seeing them myself. I've only found them at the end of an email or a telephone line rather than, than you know, on video. So uh, we'll get back to you when that comes out. Please do. I'd love to, love to check it out. And congratulations on that as well. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you both. 
Thank you. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 